Hello and welcome to Nightlight. Neil Postman's book, which came out, I don't know, three decades ago, called Amusing Ourselves to Death, is just as pointed and just as valid and just as accurate now as it was when it was written. More so, really. And he says, comparing George Orwell and 1984 with Aldous Huxley in Brave New World. He's comparing those two books. Quite often when when I'm talking to college students, I, I tell them there's three books, well really four books, that I absolutely would require them to read. And one is George Orwell's 1984 and Animal Farm. I think Animal Farm is actually a better book. Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, and then C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength, along with The Abolition of Man. I know that's actually five books, but you get the idea. These these are the books that most spell out in a, a way that... Uh, paints a picture for the mind as well as writes out the prose of what we are up against in in our current situation. But Neil Postman says here, comparing Orwell with uh, Huxley, comparing 1984 with Brave New World, he says, what Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared were those that would see no reason to ban a book because there was no one left who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much information that we would become reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. I don't know how many of you might have noticed a few weeks ago while we were facing potential nuclear conflict with North Korea and uh, part of our country was on fire and another part was facing an impending flood and tornado and earthquake in Idaho, the only thing CNN could find to report on was that Hillary Clinton said that Donald Trump gave her the creeps. That's what Huxley was concerned about, a trivial culture preoccupied with the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. Uh, CNN should probably change its call letters to CBP. Centrifugal Bumble Puppy Network. 
Anyway, in Brave New World Revisited, which Huxley wrote a few years later, he said, the civil libertarians and the rationalists who are ever on the alert to oppose tyranny failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In 1984, people are controlled by inflicting pain on them. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. I want to talk in the time that we've got today about the the danger of the overabundant culture that we live in. And we are all suffering from it. I don't think any of us listening to the sound of my voice don't have some area of our lives that are hindered and crippled and aspects of our discernment which are blinded to the point of making us irrelevant in areas where we should be highly relevant all brought on by some area of our lives that are that's overfed overcomforted over coddled over overly secure if i could say that you might say well now clay wait a minute is it ever really wrong to be too secure oh certainly it is certainly it is Paul warns us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that when a people are preoccupied with peace and safety, not the shalom of God, not the real peace, but peace and safety, uh, freedom from having to be concerned with that which is transcendent and that which may cost us our comfort, our security, and maybe even our lives. He says when that kind of Preoccupation with peace and safety is uh, in the forefront. That's when sudden destruction uh, is most likely to come. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I think the point is accurate. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. But Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. Now, psychiatrists have long studied the phenomena of suicide among the very rich. It's funny, European psychiatrists point out that suicide is uh, more more numerically high among uh, the poor in the third world countries and uh, in most of Europe. Uh, but in the affluent areas of America. It's the opposite. Suicide seems much higher, is much higher uh, among the very rich. Uh, I've got some quotes here that I borrowed from Ravi Zacharias on some of the high-profile people who reached the pinnacle of their careers and all the income and notoriety that went with that and how they reacted. Jack Higgins, who wrote, uh, among other great novels, 
the eagle has landed, said, I wish I'd known then what I know now. Speaking of, I wish I'd known before I was a success, what I know now. What's that, they ask him. That when you get to the top, there's nothing there. Boris Becker was asked after the second Wimbledon win, uh, where he becomes the tennis champion of the world, what was his greatest challenge? His answer was to keep from committing suicide. Deion Sanders, great Super Bowl hero, ordered his Lamborghini, lay in bed recounting all that he now had, got up out of the bed, got on his knees, and asked God to please save him from it all because the utter despair of having climbed to the top and finding it was empty had nearly taken his mind from him. G.K. Chesterton said, Meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain, but from becoming weary of pleasure. Solomon spells this out clearly in the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, where he begins the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity, or a more modern word, meaninglessness, meaninglessness, everything is meaningless. And then he lists all the things that he'd done, quote, under the sun, which is a Hebraic euphemism for without God. These are the things that I did, not in the transcendent realities of the invisible real, but in the mundane, everyday, materialist, humanist-centered lifestyle of one who had the wherewithal to get whatever he wanted uh, and and uh, pursue whatever lusts and desires might uh, attract him and only to find that the more I had, the emptier I was. And someone listening to this who is struggling to make ends meet and uh, battling to get through the month, month after month, and under the kind of duress that lack of money certainly can produce, might get really irritated at this message right now. And I understand that. I've been on, I've been on both sides of this to some degree. And uh, I, I can tell you from my own experience that abundance is dangerous. I don't like poverty. The Bible says neither abundance nor poverty is where you want to be. Uh, the book of Proverbs says, don't, don't desire to be rich lest you forget God and don't desire to be poor lest you steal and dishonor God. So as usual, the reality is somewhere in between. But if I start talking about poverty, I'll get off the main point. So let's leave poverty to the side for now. Johnny Mathis did a song back in the early, early 60s that says, I miss the hungry years. And it's a beautiful Beautiful song that most people, I think, nowadays wouldn't even comprehend the lyrics if they read them word for word. But it's talking about a couple who have come through the hard times and they're now living in uh, 
maybe what you might call easy street. But he goes back and says, you know, but I miss I miss the hungry years. A uh, survey was taken about 25 years ago um, by people that measure this kind of thing to try to find the happiest people in America. And they did an extensive research project and found that the happiest people were mostly poor black women around New Orleans who had a close-knit family community, a close-knit church community, an interdependent culture where they shared their ups and downs and highs and lows and provisions and lacks. They shared all those things together and lived uh, without the pressure of trying to climb some ladder. So, well, does that mean pleasure is bad? Well, obviously not. Pleasure, the Bible says in, in Proverbs or, or Psalm 16, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And screw tape picks up on this, doesn't he? If you haven't read the screw tape letters by now, how many times do I have to make reference to screw tape before you'll go on and read it for yourself? But if you haven't read Screw Tape or you're new to Nightlight and don't know what I'm talking about, C.S. Lewis wrote a novel about a demon who was responsible for seeking to destroy the life of a Christian, and he had to answer to his uncle demon, Screw Tape. And so, uh, in a conversation between Wormwood, the nephew, and Screw Tape, the uncle, Screw Tape says, You made the mistake of letting your patient enjoy a pleasure. A simple, real, down-to-earth pleasure. And by allowing him to do that, you opened him up to the voice of our enemy above. We can't create any pleasures, he says. All the pleasures come from him. We can only twist the pleasures. Our best hope is that we can get him into pleasures that really end up being not pleasurable, but only that feeds his flesh. And that brings us to a point that I want to make. I can't dwell on this, but Peter Kraft has done a great job of studying the three categories of what we would tend to call positive emotions. And he pointed out that joy is a spiritual force. Joy can endure even when other sources of pleasure are gone. That's a whole study in itself. Happiness is based on happenings, and it's it's a soulish thing. It's in the soul. It's not in the spirit. It's in the mind, the will, the emotions. It's in the, the common everyday experiences of life. But pleasure is more really of the body. It really has more to do with sensations, uh, food we eat, sexual titillation. Um, obviously, there are some pleasures that we could name that are not just physical. There might be the, the pleasure of a a vacation or the pleasure, but even that is mostly 
mostly rooted in what your body is doing or what your body is not doing. And so the body is where we have pleasure. The soul is where we might have happiness. And that's why when our happiness disappears, our soul is down. David says, why are you disquieted, O my soul? Lift up your countenance. He speaks to his own soul. You know, uh, why are you, why are you depressed, O my soul? What he's trying, what David's trying to do is get him, get himself out of his soul into his spirit. Look at God. Look, look, lift your, lift up your eyes and, and get in touch with the ultimate reality where, where joy, which is not subject to happen, happening, happenings, or temporary pleasures where joys never end. And so David writes in Psalm 16, as I just quoted, in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. At his right hand is pleasures forevermore. David uh, had a son named Solomon who didn't learn any of these truths. Now, let me just take a little side trip here and say something about Solomon that might upset some of you. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but for all Solomon's wisdom, he sure seemed to be a stupid man. Uh, You know, I, I read Solomon, and I respect the fact that he was known for his great wisdom, but if he's got such great wisdom, why did he make such an ungodly, horrendous, stupid mess, not only out of his own life, but out of his whole country? How is it possible that he he has a vision of the Lord and, and the Lord asks him what he wants and he says, I want wisdom, and God he grants him wisdom because he doesn't ask for fame or riches. Because he asks for wisdom, which is a wiser request, he ended up with fame and riches all the same. Now, I'm maybe conjecturing here more than I have the right to, but it, it seems obvious to me God was not in any way taken by surprise by Solomon's request, nor was he taken by surprise by Solomon's misuse of it. He granted him wisdom in the realm of practical knowledge, human interaction and psychology, creativity and the arts. All of the wisdom that Solomon manifested are things related to what you might call activities under the sun. They all relate to how to build your own kingdom on your own terms for your own pleasure and purposes. Could Solomon have used that wisdom to go higher and to go into the realm of the spirit where he's no longer just engaging pleasure or happiness, but he's engaging real joy? Yeah, he could have. His father did it. Did Solomon have some wound in him towards his father, that he, uh, some unforgiveness or some bitterness towards his father 
that might have kept him from uh, uh, reaching that level? Well, according to human personality and all the experiences we all have with ourselves and with other people, it's obviously more than likely that there was some brokenness in in Solomon that uh, kept him from from going where his father went. Uh, don't know, but it seems obvious. Well, the point is that Solomon, uh, with all of his wisdom, ends up writing the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a uh, what you might call a, a post-mortem description of a life poorly lived, even though he had every amenity, every uh, uh, pleasure, every resource, everything at his beck and call. And that may have been the very thing that destroyed him because he lacked for nothing. Uh, Several years ago, we did a nightlight in which I went through some detail of uh, giving the biographical story of a number of people who had won large amounts of money. Many of them were lottery winners. Some of them were uh, get-rich-quick business people. Some of them were people who inherited large amounts of money. I'm talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, some of them not quite so so large. But I remember the thing that that, uh, stood out in all of those. And in that particular nightlight, we were not talking about pleasure per se. We were talking about the danger, the spiritual power behind money and learning to discern uh, how how to negotiate wisely uh, the spiritual forces that deal in the realm of money. Mammon, the, the, the demon god of Babylon, who is behind the, the, the force of money. I know that money in itself is potentially good, but basically it's neither good or bad. It depends on how much wisdom you operate in relating to it. Um, it's like fire. It, it, is fire good or bad? Well, it depends on where you have it. Water. Look at water right now. We all know a lot about how water can be good or bad depending on whether it's inside its boundaries or not. And so uh, this this nightlight where we dis- describe these people, I remember one of the saddest ones was uh, the, the largest winner of the lottery in the state of Texas up to that time. I think it was like $245 million dollars this uh, Baptist Christian husband and father of two grown sons in his late 40s uh, who was going through business difficulties and uh, won the lottery, won the Texas lottery. Within two years, his sons were estranged from each other and from their parents. His wife was in deep depression And he killed himself with a shotgun. His wife says the darkest day of her life and of the life of her family was the day they won the $245 million. Because from that day forward, they were no longer struggling in an interdependent, loving, 
submitted family bond of care for one another. All their cares went uh, out the window when the money came in, and along with the cares went the care. When they no longer had to care for each other, they no longer cared for each other. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, again, I, I, I say what I'm saying right now, sitting in the comfort of my study, looking out my window at a beautiful sunset. Uh, there's no storm clouds. There's no danger near me that I'm aware of. Uh, I slept in a safe, warm bed last night. I had a good meal today. I drank water when I needed it. Went to uh, the facilities that when I needed to, and they all worked. And I couldn't help but think as I well, walked out of the restroom how simple a pleasure it is to be able to just take care of your business when and where you need to. And the thousands and thousands, not only in Florida, but in Texas uh, and in other parts of the country that are suffering from other things. You know, you may not even be aware that there's 80 forest fires burning in the Northwest. There's the largest f- uh, fire in the history of Los Angeles County burning in, in L.A. County. Uh, and that there is a 5.3 earthquake in Idaho that has had, uh, uh, I don't know, 200 aftershocks. And then there is a million acres burning in Montana right now. And so I'm thinking of, of all that, and I'm weighing my words carefully before I say what I'm about to say. That could it be that in the midst of such trauma, when when so many basic necessities of life are are ripped away that in the midst of that sorrow a great resurrection of care for one another can be brought back to life in the midst of caring for one another i know when katrina hit the mississippi gulf coast which used to be my home uh, my interaction with uh, my former neighbors down there when I would speak to them on the phone and they would tell me, I mean, everything. You know, New Orleans got all of the the press, but Gulfport, Biloxi, and that area uh, was devastated far, far more than New Orleans was. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, the the houses were not only destroyed. One friend of mine told me, he said, he said, Clay, it looks like the houses were first knocked over, then they were put through a shredder, then they were put through a chipper, then they were put through a smaller chipper, so that pieces of houses became pieces of pieces of pieces of houses until there's nothing but piles of rubble. He said, the only advantage there is in that is it's easier to scoop it up in the, uh, in the front end loader. Uh, and the and the dump trucks and take it away because it's shredded so small. But in the midst of that, the way people came together, the way the churches who no longer had any buildings, I, I don't I don't mean this to sound disrespectful or unkind, but what a wonderful thing when the churches had no buildings and they still 
manifested the presence of God, the kingdom of God, the presence of the, 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 the purposes of God, they still gathered together to worship under trees and uh, in parking lots and under uh, canopies, homemade canopies. People brought their canned goods together. People made sure other people had what they needed. And and one friend of mine told me, he said, I, I hope you won't think I'm crazy. But he said, maybe I'm just running on adrenaline. Maybe that's all this is, is I'm just high on my own adrenaline. But he said, I, I haven't been this happy in a long, long time. There's no pleasure going on in my body. I'm hurting I'm sunburned, I'm hungry a lot, I'm not getting much sleep, but I have the joy of making sure my neighbors are cared for. And there's a happiness in my soul. He he didn't say it like this, but I'm trying to make an illustration. There's no pleasure in my body, but there's happiness in my soul, and there's joy in my spirit. You know, again, quoting Ravi Zacharias, uh, Ravi said, based on Judges chapter 7, the story of Gideon's troops, remember when Gideon had too many men? They're about to go into battle, and I think when he had 30,000, and God said to Gideon, you've got too many men. In other words, there's such a thing as having too much. I sit here in my study, I'm surrounded by books. I've read most of them. Some of them I've read several times. Some of them I trudged through and never want to read again, I don't think. Some of them I call to me. When I walk in here, I can hear their voices calling to me. Come back. Come back to me. I would love to come back to a lot of them because of the sheer pleasure of of reading them. But I can never have that that pleasure again. Because you can only have the pleasure of reading a book the first time, one time. And then whenever you go back, you're, it's, it's a different kind of pleasure. But my point is, I once had three times the books I've got in this study right now. Uh, you know, it was in a much larger room. And one day I was, on, I was, I was listening to uh, an FBI agent on, on, C, uh, on C-SPAN talking about the danger we were under in America. Uh, and the uh, uh, interviewer said to him, well, how, what would you say is the greatest danger we face in America today? And he didn't blink an eye. He said, I can tell you without thinking. I can tell you exactly what the greatest danger is we face. Too much information. We have too much information, and the information is so ir- uh, Irrelevant, that it can easily become a cover, a covert place to hide for meaningful information to sneak past us and leave us open for another 9-11. Too much information. The Holy Spirit immediately spoke to me and he said, I want you to get rid of one third of these books. Now that was a daunting task. I realized something very dangerous about bookish people. That you can, you can, you can have a lust for books. You know, one of the things Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, he says, of the making of many books, 
There is no end. Boy, do I know that's true. I warn some of my younger students. I, I say it to them pretty often as I'm telling them the books they need to read. Uh, beware not to buy these books ahead. That's a tramp. Don't, don't buy books. I miss bookstores. I really, really miss bookstores. Mary and I actually went to a used bookstore in uh, the largest used bookstore on the West Coast. We went to uh, that bookstore, five stories of books uh, on our honeymoon. I mean, that kind of shows you how Mary and I, what we think of books. That's not the only thing we did on our honeymoon, but that was one of the fun things we did on our honeymoon. But you know, uh, having a lust for books, one of the great traps is the pleasure of buying the book and never engaging the joy of gaining wisdom from it by reading it. You just bought this book. You know, so you, what do you do? You add it to the stack of books you bought the last time. And it, I know some of you are thinking, well, I don't have that problem with books. Maybe you have that problem with golf uh, paraphernalia or hunting paraphernalia or you name it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to say anything's right or wrong about that except that the pleasure of gathering information or gathering material or gathering, you know, you're stacking up stuff. You're like the, if we're not careful, we're like the man Jesus talked about in the parable in Luke where he says a man had a barn and he filled it and then he built another barn and he filled it and he built another barn and he filled it and he said, oh, uh, my soul can just take its rest now and I can enjoy my stacks and stacks of stuff in my barns. And the the parable says, the voice from heaven said, you fool, tonight your life is required of you. And people hear that parable or they read it and they think, yeah, this guy must have been a real crook. He got all this ill-gotten gain and put it in his barns like a mafioso some, somebody or other who's just stacking up stuff for his own uh, uh, self-aggrandizement. That's not what that parable is talking about. It's not saying this guy was some crook. It's just talking about him being a fool, He's a fool because he was hooked on pleasure and materialistic self-gratification for the moment, and he just stacked up stuff so he could stack up stuff so he could stack up stuff so he could stack up stuff. And then the reason he was a fool is because he wasted his opportunity in life to produce good and to produce life and blessing to others because he was so busy stacking up stuff. That's why he was called a fool, not because he was a crook. I mean, can you relate to that? So I I, I have that same uh, feeling go through me sometimes when I, I mean, my books are my tools. I, I'm, in some ways, I'm not much different than a, a craftsman if I, I don't mean to be flattering myself, but I do have a certain craft that I have to use these books for as tools. But I'll tell you, uh, when the Lord told me to get rid of a third of my books, 
Twice more times after that, the Lord said, get rid of, of another third of your books. And then another time, another third of your books. Now, uh, unbeknownst to me, he was getting ready to move me into our house where I didn't have room for those other books. But that wasn't the only reason. He was trying to get me delivered of too much information, too much pursuing of mere knowledge, too much preoccupation with collecting. I'm not so sure collecting is a godly thing. I, I don't want to get off on that. It's none of my business to judge you. You may enjoy certain collections of things. Mary and I had a professor in college who was a godly man. He's a great man of God. He's still a great man of God. But he collected frogs. And, uh, I mean, his office looked like the plague of Egypt, man, with all these plastic frogs and stuff around his office. (laughs) I wonder if he's been delivered of that by now. I bet he has. I bet he has found all kind of people to pass those frogs on to. I don't think it was his fault necessarily. I think somebody got him hooked on it, and then it got to be a fad, and all of his students bought him frogs. Anyway, that's kind of a non not important subject. Susanna Wesley was asked by her son, John, or it might have been Charles, his boys, maybe it was John, he said, Mother, what is sin? Susanna Wesley, who had 18 children among them, John Wesley and Charles Wesley, who became the great powerhouses of the move of the Holy Spirit in England and America in the Second Great Awakening. This is what she said. Whatever weakens your reasoning, whatever impairs the tenderness of your conscience, Whatever obscures your sense of God or dims your desire for him. In short, whatever increases the power of the flesh over the spirit, that is sin, no matter how good it is in itself. Did you get that? Mama, what is sin? And here's this godly woman some of you who think you don't do anything for God because you're, you know, you live in a mundane world with a mundane life. Can you imagine? Susanna Wesley sometimes, with 18 children, she had nowhere to go to get alone with God. She would put her uh, 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 shawl over her head as her prayer closet to just have a few seconds alone with the Lord. But she said, John, what is sin? Whatever weakens your reasoning, whatever impairs the tenderness of your conscience, whatever obscures your sense of God or dims your desire for him, in short, whatever increases the power of the flesh over the spirit, that is sin, no matter how good it may be in itself. Sometimes for me, it's, it comes and goes. It's not always true. But there are times for me, listening to the news, for me, is sin. Because if, if I'm in a mindset where I, I take pleasure in being angry at what I'm hearing, then for me, it's sin. It doesn't matter if the information is important or I might 
manipulate myself into believing that because I'm, I, I need to hear this, I need to know what's going on in the world. No, I don't. No, I don't. I still love what C.S. Lewis said even in the World War II days. He didn't read the newspaper. He said, if anything important enough happens, somebody will tell me about it. Otherwise, I don't want to read people's propaganda. Whatever weakens your reasoning, that could include a lot of things related to television watching. I don't, I, I don't want to go off on my, my opinion of this, but whatever impairs the tenderness of your conscience, getting angry at the news impairs the tenderness of my conscience. When I'm angry at somebody who's speaking for the opposition party in America, I'm not tender in my heart to hear what the Holy Spirit might want me to think or say uh, in response to that person. I've told you stories already about times when the Holy Spirit has interrupted me in watching people on the news that I was angry at and kind of taking pleasure in being angry at them. And the Lord would interrupt me and speak to me about His heart concerning that, that person. Not the news broadcast, not the political conflict, not the foolish error that they may be propagating, but them as a person. Whatever lessens your desire for God or your desire to, to be with God. You know, I mean, I got a friend who is a great golf player and he told me how guilty he felt for playing golf. I said, why do you feel guilty for playing golf? Well, take the Lord with you for heaven's sakes. Well, there's stuff going on on that golf course sometimes that I wouldn't want the Lord to hear. Well, <laughs> first of all, he, he does hear it. Second, you're there to be salt and light. And if you've got a conscious awareness of his presence with you out there, then you might manifest something of the kingdom that will bring light into their darkness. But for heaven's sakes, don't get into some legalistic, religious, cultic way of thinking that says, well, I just won't play golf anymore because I can't, I can't have a prayer meeting out on the third hole. It's crazy. Anyway, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 13 says, Any pleasure not kept in balance will destroy or distort reality. Any pleasure not kept in balance will dis distort reality. Check out Proverbs 25, 13 in reference to that. Now, in, in the time we've got left, let me just say something on a personal note here. Uh, in 1976, when I was 22 years old, and I was in the peak of my ministry. If you can, if you can imagine that, I, I know it's hard for some of you to comprehend what the Jesus Movement days were like when a 22-year-old could leave college and go into full-time ministry. And the reason I did it was to escape the pain of my own sexual and emotional agony. And so I thought, you know, I'll just go into full-time ministry because uh, I can teach and I can minister to people. I can pray for people and uh, they'll get help. And I can outrun my pain and pursue pleasure 
uh, to outrun my pain. And that's, that's really what I did. I mean, uh, that's too long a story to get into, but I was, I was pursuing, I was pursuing pleasure. The pleasure of ministry, the pleasure of traveling, the pleasure of music, the pleasure of uh, my own company, the pleasure of the company of the guys that I traveled with and worked with in the band, uh, the, the pleasure of college campuses. Oh, it was all pleasure. And in the midst of it, there was very little reality of God. God did use me, but he used me in spite of me. I was like a, a clogged artery. The blood flow could get through, but barely. And then there was all this other death-dealing, heart attack-wielding carnality blocking the flow of the Spirit through me. And I wanted reality, and I didn't have a clue. I, I could give it to others, but I didn't know how to get it for myself. And one day, uh, I was getting into a car with a friend of mine. We were about to go eat catfish. And he stuck the cassette player. Some of you remember what a cassette player is. If you see Guardians of the Galaxy, you'll know what a cassette player is. I had one of those. He had one of those. And he, he stuck a cassette player in, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me. It was almost audible. It was so loud, so clear in my heart. The Holy Spirit said, listen to this song carefully. And Barry McGuire was singing, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, leaving me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow. Never a word, said she. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And as I listened to that song all the way through, the Father said to me, will you walk with me through this? Will you trust me to take you from pleasure to joy? And that's what he was saying. Now, I, I, he didn't say it that way. I'm... I'm, I'm putting a retro aspect uh, spin on it. But what he was saying to me was, will you, will you trust me to walk you through the sorrows that will be necessary that, to bring you to the fullness of joy? And I said to him, of course what he said to me was, will you walk with me through this sorrow? I said to him, in my heart, as the song was playing, I want what you want no matter what it costs me. Take me wherever you will. I'll follow you. It's amazing the miracles that can happen between the house and the catfish village. But a transformation took place in my life that day. Oh, many, many things still needed to be dealt with. But the the, the root issues were exposed before the Lord in a way that uh, had never been exposed up until that time. And it would be many years before I would be able to walk through those those times uh, fully. But he, Philippians 1, six, he who has begun a good work in us will bring it to completion. I walked a mile with pleasure. 
She chattered all the way, leaving me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow. Never a word, said she, but all the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Now, God is not the author of sorrow. But sorrow is what has to happen in us when our willful ignorance collides with God's wisdom and goodness. God told Bob Mumford one time, Son, you and I are incompatible and I don't change. (laughs) You and I are incompatible and I don't change. I love that. It's also, I found it to be very true. So, uh, legitimate pleasure always comes from God. Legitimate sorrow comes from our conflict with God that God then uses to bring about legitimate deliverance so that we can come into legitimate joy. But you see, you see how all that works? Uh, let's talk just for a few seconds in the closing moments we've got here about addiction. Addiction is pleasurable. Just think about yours. <laughs> yes, you do have one. I'm sure you've got one somewhere. Um, all addictions are pleasurable. The reason they're pleasurable, have you ever had an itch that was so driving you crazy? I mean, driving you crazy, and you could not legitimately scratch it. Uh, I remember in football when I had athlete's foot, and I would my foot would be itching so bad. I mean, and I thought, you know, I had fan, I had a fantasy life going about scratching that foot. I mean, it was, it was a full blown, full color, three dimensional Dolby sound fantasy life of getting that shoe off and getting my fingernails into my toes and scratching till the blood squirted. I mean, are you getting the picture? And, uh, Would you really call that a pleasure compared to a a nice dinner with your family? I mean, they're both pleasures. (laughs) But, But one is a real pleasure and the other is not really a pleasure. What is it? It's the alleviation of suffering that is so irritating, so painful, so all-encompassing that when it's finally relieved, it feels like a pleasure, but it's really not a pleasure. The the alleviation of a pain is not a pleasure. It's the alleviation of pain. That's all it is. Well, what are addictions? Whether whether it's drugs or sex or alcohol or shopping or going to every church meeting you can go to uh, at the cost of other important things in your life. Or whatever, you name it. Whatever the, whatever the addiction is, it's not a pleasure. It's an attempt to alleviate suffering in some area of your life. And the only way you are ever going to really come into true pleasure at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. To ever come into that 
level of pleasure, you must first go through the valley of sorrow that will get you out of touch with the wrong way of dealing with the sorrow and deal with the sorrow in wisdom and truth that will then bring you into the fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. At his right hand, uh, in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is a hedonist. God loves the pleasures. He invented all of them, much to screw tapes, anger, and frustration. We have not been able to come up with one pleasure, Wormwood. All we can do is twist what he made into some deformed misuse of it. And so, when your only goal in life is to escape pain, and the gain of pleasure, you will not find lasting pleasure and you will certainly end up in lasting pain. So right now, in the closing moments of this time together, Holy Spirit, come. Take us where we don't know how to go on our own. Let us turn this machine off, turn my voice off, and tune into yours so that you can take us further up and further in to the pleasure of your presence. And in that presence, we will lay aside the false pleasures, embrace the pain of whatever level we've been hiding from it, and let you take us into the fullness of joy. In Jesus' precious name, who for the joy that was set before him endured the pain that he might embrace the fullness of joy, which is us. In Jesus' name, we thank you for it. Amen. God bless you all. Talk to you next time.